Welcome to Transit Unplugged. I'm your host, Paul Comfort, and this is another edition of Comfort's Corner, where we bring you the inside story and what's happening in and around the public transportation industry. And today we've got quite a great show for you. Uh, we've got lots of important headline news from our industry, which I think you'll find uh, very interesting. Then we have our newsmaker interview, Sam Sargent from Cap Metro in Austin, Texas, will tell us what's happening down there, one of the most progressive cities in the U.S. when it comes to public transportation. Then we've got our messaging minute and Mike's minute, and then a reading from uh, what is happening with the current future public transportation, a recent uh, post I wrote that I'm going to read to you today on uh, how we can uh, make our transit systems future-proof, kind of harden them for maybe a spike in this pandemic or whatever is yet to come. All that on this episode of Comfort's Corner, part of the Transit Unplugged family. And now we take a look at our headline news. Congratulations go to Dave Genova, our friend uh, who was a longtime employee there at Denver RTD. Uh, now he is moving to LTK Engineering, which is a global consulting firm, and they announced that they're pleased to welcome the former Denver Regional uh, Transportation District General Manager and CEO Dave Genova as its Director of Transit Advisory Services. We have a, um, a brotherhood or a sisterhood, a, a club of former CEOs who have gone on to other things now, and we like to highlight the good news that comes out of our industry when somebody who's a great guy like Dave, just a solid guy, he was a guest uh, earlier on our podcast. I remember I interviewed him one time uh, at a APTA conference, I think it was, and uh, just found him to be delightful, uh, a real family man, um, uh, you know, athletic, bikes all the time, et cetera, solid guy, 26 years there at RTD and now moving on after he retired this last year to a big firm, LTK Engineering. Uh, congratulations uh, to you, Dave. Also want to point out some other interesting headline news. Another good friend of mine, Eddie Robar, is, is uh, head of Edmonton Transit in Canada, and he was on our podcast earlier last year and uh, talked about him moving toward a real electric battery bus future for his agency. And they just announced this week that they uh, – are you know moving forward with their big purchase they've moved forward with uh, 21 proterra electric buses and they have a brand new purpose-built electric bus garage get that so they're going to end up with 40 19 more proterra buses are on the way this year to make up a 40 bus fleet one of the largest purchases of electric buses in canadian history and with this deployment uh, edmonton transit services also becomes the first to implement an in-depot overhead charging on the continent of north america ets is beginning to put their electric buses into service this month in early August. And so congratulations, um, 21 battery electric buses, part of a big garage that they purpose built uh, to charge buses uh, when they're in there. B big news on the zero emission uh, front. And then finally, uh, another big piece of headline news for the US, uh, the United States House of Representatives this week passed a $1.3 trillion package of appropriation bills and that will include funding for FY 2021 to six departments, including the U.S. Department of Transportation, according to Mass Transit Magazine. The package now heads to, heads to the Senate and the House Appropriations Subcommittee on Transportation. Uh, the chair, David Price, said that the transportation portion of the package represents a renewed commitment to modernizing an aging transportation infrastructure. He said, throughout the bill, we focus on improved safety, the needs of underserved people and communities, and resiliency in the face of a changing climate. And uh, I wanted to point out some headlines from the bills. There's $107.2 billion in total budgetary resources 
for the U.S. Department of Transportation in their FY fiscal year 21 Department of Transportation budget, including a billion dollar for national infrastructure investments. These are like Tiger Build Grants, $3 million to support the Highly Automated Systems Safety Center of Excellence, $10 million for transportation planning grants to assist areas of persistent poverty, which is a new competitive grant program, $3 billion for the Federal Railroad Administration, uh, including $500 million for Consolidated Rail Infrastructure and Safety Improvement Grants, $200 million for the Federal State Partnership for State of Good Repair, and just over $2 billion for Amtrak, including $750 million for Northeast Corridor Grants, $18.9 billion for the Federal Transit Administration, which is where many of our listeners get their funds. $15.9 billion of that will go toward Transit Formula Grants, funded from the Highway Trust Fund, $2.2 billion for capital investment grants and SIG grants, and $510 million for transit infrastructure grants. And they all, the, money, the package also includes $26 billion to enhance the resiliency of the nation's infrastructure. Uh, and so uh, I think that's uh, very important, including $100 million for the Magnetic Levitation Technology Deployment Program, and $5 billion for Northeast Corridor grants to Amtrak, and $3 billion the National Network grants. And so the, the last piece, which is interesting, is that this package also maintains a mandate that face coverings or masks be worn on all Amtrak trains, as well as on transit systems that serve an area with a population of more than 500,000 people and provide at least 20 million unlinked passenger trips. So uh, interesting that they're taking the opportunity for a, uh, a funding bill to implement direct policy requiring masks, not allowing local transit agencies to make their own decisions. You can find the language of the package online uh, if you wanna look at it directly and see how it might impact you and what's happening next. To representatives, now it has to go to the Senate where there'll be you know, other negotiations that take place there. Also wanna pass on to you a couple other interesting uh, kind of uh, program notes, interesting bits of news. Uh, I was able to interview Andy Byford this week, uh, the former CEO, of course, Toronto Transit Commission, where he won APTA's award for the big system of the year a few years ago. Then he went on to New York City uh, to much fame and acclaim, where he stayed for about two years. And then he left and uh, just recently went back to London, he told me, to uh, basically to work on his visa, et cetera, and was planning to come back to New York when the opportunity was presented to him to become the commissioner or you know their version of a CEO of Transport for London, the big uh, transit system there that includes not just transit, but roads, et cetera. And he was selected and started his job at the end of June, uh, early July. And uh, I was so happy to talk to him yesterday in his home. Uh, and he showed me out the window uh, where his home is at, right on the Thames River, great, great location, his apartment or whatever he's got going there, uh, where they're staying right now. I think it's uh, uh, a great location for him, right in the heart of London. And he talks me through, you know, what happened in New York, uh, with some detail and uh, what he's planning on doing now in London uh, at Transport for London really is an old friend of mine. But right now, I think he really is the, probably the top public transportation official in the world. And uh, so great to finally get him back on the program. He did a podcast for us early on when he was at Toronto and so happy to have him on. So that will be program note, our episode for September 1st. Put that on your calendars. Uh, if you don't subscribe to this podcast, you probably should. You don't want to miss that. It's, an, it's a wide-ranging interview, personal news about him, talk about his um, recent visit to, uh, you know, number 10 Downing Street, et cetera, all kinds of great stories and interesting about his time in Australia. And that will kind of kick off a series 
During the month of September, we're going to be focused on our big shows every other week on Australia. And we've got a couple great guests, which we'll announce coming up soon, but major officials in public transportation in Australia, and they'll be our guests every other week in between our Comforts Corner shows uh, in that month. Also want to pass on to you, uh, very excited about the opportunity to do something for the Eno Center for Transportation. You may be aware of them. They're the nation's leading think tank when it comes to public transportation and airlines, et cetera. And they, I've done a lot of work with them over the years and very excited to um, be offered the opportunity to submit an article for the inaugural digital issue of a new magazine they're putting out for their alumni. There are thousands and thousands of alumni called Propel. And so I'm gonna, I've, I've written it and actually I'm submitting it this week to them, uh, an article about how to harden or future-proof your transit agency. And it's a, it's a really good take a look at what's happening around the world uh, and how people are working to basically prepare their transit system, how leaders can prepare their transit system uh, for the next pandemic or whatever happens next to make the system more resilient. And that'll be in their upcoming issue of Propel Magazine. And finally, I just wanted to uh, let you know that we're making great progress on my children's book, uh, Public Transportation. Subtitle is From the Tom Thumb Railroad to Hyperloop and Beyond. Working with a great illustrator. We've been working uh, for probably about six months now on the book, and it's just about finished. We'll be taking the month of um, uh, late August and into September to promote the book. It'll be available on Amazon, and, uh, and then the book will go on sale most likely in October. Uh, in time for back to school. For those of you who are homeschooling your kids this year, uh, whether you wanted to or not, it's a great addition to that, um, as well as schools and a great way for us in the public transportation industry, I thought, to share with our grandchildren, our children, our nieces and nephews, hey, this is what mom, this is what dad, this is what Uncle Paul does for a living. And uh, I work in this industry and share with them the great pictures and illustrations and stories and interesting facts about public transportation. I think you'll find the book fascinating if you don't follow me on LinkedIn, uh, please do, and you can see some of the updates as we're coming, but we'll start uh, talking about it more in the weeks to come, but we're just about finished on the book, and I'm excited about it and wanted to announce it to you, uh, our listeners here on Comfort's Corner first. So thank you for being with us today, and now stay tuned for that exciting Newsmaker interview with Sam Sargent from Cap Metro here on Transit Unplugged. Welcome to Transit Unplugged. I'm Paul Comfort, your host. And today on our Newsmaker Hotline is Sam Sargent, who's Deputy Chief of Staff at Cat Metro in Austin, Texas. Sam, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. Yeah, Sam and I have uh, uh, been working off and on together on different uh, different podcasts. And uh, uh, we, did a, uh, we did a webinar about a month ago, and he did such a great job. I asked him to come back now on our Transit Unplugged podcast. And let uh, people around the world get to hear from him and all the great things he's got going there in Austin. So um, you are talking to me today from the capital of Texas. Tell me about um, what's going on there now and uh, a little bit about your agency and yourself. Well, you know, Austin, like any other big city here in the United States, we're number 11 at the moment. We're struggling through the public health and economic impacts of, of coronavirus. You know, we, we hit a point where we thought we were seeing a, a flattening of the curve, and we've seen another spike this summer, unfortunately, but I know that our city and county officials are, are doing everything that they can to, uh, to slow this down, and school districts, obviously, are trying to plan for what the fall looks like, including the University of Texas, by the way. Um, but on the Capital Metro side, you know, we've, we've really looked at COVID in three phases of how we are uh, 
responding, uh, how we're recovering, and then what our long-term plans are for resiliency. So since this all began, we've done a lot, just like so many other agencies, but we have done a lot to make sure that our customers, our operators in the community are safe if they are using our services for essential uh, trips. We've also uh, repurposed some of our administrative staff into operations and community support roles. It's part of a program called All Hands. And then we've done a lot of other uh, e-sourcing and distribution, adding operator shields, uh, everything that we can do to make sure folks are safe long-term, but also right now while we're seeing this spike. That's great. So you work there with a good friend of mine, Randy Clark, who uh, used to work with APTA. That's where I got to know him, but he also came from Boston before that MBTA. And he has just brought, I think, a wellspring of life and vibrancy to your agency. It really matches, I think, the vibe of the city being the place where South by Southwest is, et cetera. So tell us a little bit about your agency itself and, and uh, you know, kind of the um, number of vehicles, number of, you know, kind of give us a scope of, of work that you do there in Austin, what type of modes of operation you operate. I couldn't agree more about Randy. He does bring uh, that energy and that passion, uh, especially to a city like Austin. Uh, I would say of Randy too, he is a very forward-looking guy. He's probably one of the only folks you would ever meet who could reminisce about the future. He is always two, three <laughs> steps ahead. I love um, so it's really exciting to be a part of it. So Capital Metro, um, we run uh, commuter rail, we also run bus, uh, and that includes local fixed route, express. We also have a couple of innovative mobility zones uh, that we call pickup. We've got six of those that we, we really enjoyed putting together because it serves a, a need that fixed route's not able to handle. But we've uh, got just over 400 fixed route vehicles, um, about 300 and some paratransit vehicles, and 10 Swiss-made uh, Stadler rail cars. Um, We've got about 350 administrative staff, but our whole Capital Metro family, when you include our contract operations, we are contracted out to MV, MTM, and Herzog between air transit and rail, respectively. We're at about 2,000 strong. And uh, our service area is um, Austin, along with six other suburban cities, and it's about 1.2 million right now. Before COVID hit, um, you know, we were, we were moving a, a Pretty, a pretty healthy uh, 115, 120,000 folks on an average weekday. We had seen 18 straight months of ridership increases after a major bus network redesign in June of 2018. Obviously that ended, that growth uh, ended with, uh, with COVID, but we really think that we're, we're on a great trajectory here. We think that we've responded in the appropriate ways to COVID. And, and once we're all past this, and once we're past this trauma is, is the word that I would use for it, economic, public health, you name it, I think we've got a really bright future ahead of us here in Austin. We are growing incredibly fast. And as anybody in the business knows, you know, geometry is the name of the game at the end of the day. And we are here to move people more efficiently. So exciting times in Austin, exciting times for Capital Metro. And what's your responsibilities there as Deputy Chief of Staff, Sam? As Deputy Chief of Staff, I'm sort of a jack of all trades. I work very closely with Randy Clark, our CEO, but I really interface uh, mainly with our planning group, and that would include our long-range planners who are working on Project Connect, which maybe we can speak to a little bit later on. That's our long-range vision for transit in Central Texas. Uh, and then I work very closely with our government relations and community engagement groups. That's part of my background with the agency. I'm a lawyer by training, and so it gives me the chance to go out, hear what people are thinking and wanting out of their transit system, 
but also to go back into uh, and to translate uh, planner speak, operation speak, capital project speak back to the community, just so people know where is their investment going, where is the agency going, and what can we do for them. That's great. Big responsibility, especially on the uh, on the government relations side. That, that's wonderful. Let's talk about COVID a little bit, and then we'll get into Project Connect. Um, so uh, I was looking at your statistics earlier this week on ridership, and um, it looks as if uh, the numbers in May were up by about 200,000, like maybe it was a million passengers in April and then 1.2 in May. Are you still seeing that increase as June and now into July? Are you seeing kind of some recovery of the ridership that you lost with the gut punch that COVID brought? We are. And when you look at it year over year, obviously in a place like Austin, we've got a lot of major events. So missing South by means that we missed out on what is traditionally our highest ridership spike. Um, sure. Same with, we assume in September, uh, ACL has been canceled for September and October, and then we'll see what football season looks like. But yes, we saw that initial major impact on the system about 65% down. Um, we have since recovered, we're about 50% down year over year. And so we're starting to see fixed route, especially come back up. Uh, we're seeing a little bit of ridership and rail come back up. Um, we are still lagging on our express bus services, although those yes. are the schedules that we cut more than others. and. Of course, a lot of the folks who are on those uh, on those trips uh, may be teleworking or with reduced congestion. Unfortunately, maybe maybe driving again. But yes, we are seeing we are seeing recovery uh, on on the ridership side of things. Yeah, I was looking at uh, some of the major transit systems across the country just to get a feel for how things are going. And unfortunately, many transit systems, you know, are two months in arrears on their number. So they're showing May and we're already in July. And I get that. Uh, but what I did see, New York does daily numbers every day, New York City MTA. And of course, they are the largest transit system in America. Uh, and, but on the bus ridership side, there were numbers like 30% increase in May over April, 30% for the first seven days of the month. I looked at the first seven days of the month. So basically, they've had 30% over the last three months. Uh, two or three months of increases. So they're seeing also an increase in their bus. But like you mentioned, there is this um, rebound effect where people thought that we were clear of it and now it's coming back a little bit, or at least the number of cases are. Uh, what, where do you see this? You know, What's the impact on your system? Do you have any idea about where things are going over the next few weeks? I think over the next few weeks, we'll probably remain stable I would imagine, um, you know, unless there's more public health orders that really keep people from going out, especially essential workers from going to work at places like grocery stores or fulfillment centers. Uh, if there's any change in those trip patterns, we could unfortunately see another decline. My hope is that we remain stable. And then once we know more about what back to school looks like, whether or not University of Texas is gonna be in session, we can really make better predictions about what that uptick looks like. And the other thing, that we're keeping an eye on in partnership with um, Movability, which is our local uh, travel demand management nonprofit, as well as the local chamber and our, our MPO, is how much information we can get about what our employer is planning on doing. Because I think that that's the biggest unknown from a service planning perspective yeah. and from a long range perspective is we've never really designed our American transit systems around the absence of a peak commute. And you know some of our healthiest, most vibrant transit systems, like in New York, city that never sleeps, you're able to run lots of service all the time because people are moving around all the time. Well, 
Austin strip patterns are still a little bit more traditional, even though we've got great nightlife and a lot of different types of jobs, but it's just hard to predict what the world's gonna look like if people are not taking the big AM and big PM trips. And so um, with those partners, we are looking at who is going to remain um, principally teleworking and for how long. Uh, I know that that's of great interest, not only to transportation planners, but to commercial real estate folks. And so um, we're hearing more and more that a lot of folks may be coming back in the September, October timeframes across the downtown, and we certainly expect to see uh, another uptick in ridership. And, uh, and I'll say the other item too, the other number that's critically important for transit is for us, it is uh, sales tax. It's the funding hit that we've uh, experienced in the industry and we've experienced it in different ways, I know. And Paul, you, you look at all the numbers for everything, um, but you know, in Austin and in Texas, our metropolitan transportation authorities are funded by sales tax by and large. And uh, our sales tax is about 80% of our total budget. And fortunately, we have not been down as far as we thought. We were down about as far as 20, 25% month over month when this began and things really locked down. And, uh, but our budget is actually still, we're pretty much breaking even uh, with our budget. And obviously the CARES Act was, was tremendously helpful for our operation, but that's another thing that we've just got to keep looking at and, and make sure that we've got the funds in place to serve everybody here in Central Texas. Yes, that's good. Uh, and what was your fare box recovery ratio and have you gone fare free for now? Our fare box recovery ratio was about seven and a half. Uh, so obviously compared to some of our other peers who have much higher fare box recovery ratios, we haven't seen a proportionate decline in revenue relative to that decline in ridership. Okay. Um, we, did, we did go fare free. We went fare free in late March, but on June 1st, we went back to uh, front door boarding. That being the principal reason why we went fare free was to try to limit interactions between customers and our operators. But we've got our fares back up and running. We've got our operator shields in place up at the front. Uh, so we've, we've reinstituted fares and we're just trying to get our, our whole system and our operation back up to what we expect normal to look like in the months to come. That's excellent. Yeah, it's funny. I was, tell, I was talking to a CEO last week about those shields, driver shields. So I put them up at Baltimore MTA when I was CEO there uh, five years ago and got a lot of pushback from people who, who didn't want them at the time. And now... It's all the rage. So everybody wants them, and people yeah, are coming up right. with some some really clever ways. At least at first, during that phase that I yeah. recall, shower curtains almost. Yep. Yeah. The immediate response: you got shower curtains. You name it. Yeah. So let's talk about the future now in our remaining few minutes. Tell us about Project Connect. I'm so excited about that, and I think you sent me a text on my birthday and said something got approved on June 10th, and or somebody <laughs> did. So yeah. So tell us about that. So. Austin is the 11th large city in the country. I think pretty soon our city demographer says we'll be 10th, but we are one of, I would say two cities, San Antonio being the other, that has not invested heavily in transit infrastructure. That's the real critical thing. We think we run a fantastic bus service. We run great paratransit on demand in our commuter rail, but Austin does not have the infrastructure in place for dedicated transit ways, whether it be bus or light rail. And um, this community has tried. Uh, we've gone to the ballot in 2000 and 2014, failed both times by different margins. But the past four years, we've been taking a look at 
what what is the plan for the future? What is the plan for the future of a region that by 2039 will have doubled in population again? And that's just critical because from all the estimates we've heard from our, our DOT is that we can only build 10% more roadway capacity and yet we will double in size in 19 years. So something's gotta give. And so Project Connect is the long range vision. Uh, and ever since Randy came on board the past two years, we have been on overdrive heading towards a November um, election community decision with our partners from the city of Austin who are absolutely our closest partners day to day, but for the, uh, in the future for this Project Connect effort. So this would be uh, two new light rail lines. Austin does not currently have light rail, multiple bus rapid transit routes, on-demand services, overhauling of our fare system so that we can do things like fare capping and have account-based payment, and a whole host of other things, including placemaking, that are really just gonna transform how people move around in this region. But the spine routes, LRT, as well as a new commuter route actually out to some of our eastern suburbs are all part of this overarching plan. It's got a $9.8 billion all-in uh, price tag on it. And, um, and we have, uh, on your birthday, uh, our, our city council and our board both approved the plan. And now we're moving forward towards a joint venture, which would assist with governance for this project, would assist with construction. And we are still uh, on track uh, towards a November 3rd community decision, uh, and it's it's really exciting. I think that the time is now. I think that the support is there. And I think even before COVID, but still with COVID, people realize that we've hit a tipping point. We have questions of equity and of access in this community, and this is the solution. So I feel really yeah. excited about it, and um, and we'll, I feel good about November, but but we will see. Yeah, that's a massive project. Uh, and I know you spent so much time working on it. And I got to be honest with you, I, I agree with you. I think that now more than ever, transit is p positioned and poised to be the solution to more problems maybe than people thought about prior to this. And I think the folks in Washington have seen that public transit is um, it's not a nicety. It's not like taking a cruise, uh, you know, although that's a lot of people on one vehicle moving somewhere. You know, this is a public necessity. And they've seen that uh, even when politicians said, you know, public transit is a petri dish filled with germs. Don't ride it unless you know absolutely have to. Still, the systems are half full, uh, and so uh, this shows you that people need to take it. And even when they thought, in my mind, uh, not correctly so, but even when they thought it could be the possibility for you know germs, etc., it's still needed. And our frontline workers rely on it. So I wish you all the best in this new project you've got. And before the voters and uh, we will definitely stay on tune with it and and broadcast to the world your success uh, when that goes through. I look forward to that. It's it's exciting times and, and you said it perfectly. We we are a necessity and we move people on essential trips. It's it's a, always a good time to be in transit, but I think it, it feels particularly important right now. Yeah, and our and our operators have become the new frontline heroes. Uh, yes, our bus operators, our drivers. So it's it's a wonderful time. Sam Sargent, uh, thank you so much for being our newsmaker uh, guest today on Comforts Corner, Transit Unplugged. We wish you the best and pass on our best wishes to your boss, uh, Randy, as well. Thank you, Paul. Hi, 
I'm Alea Carey. I'm a communications consultant who loves working with public transit agencies. I recently completed some research on behalf of a metropolitan bus division. They wanted to learn more about what other agencies were doing with their internal communication strategies and tactics to improve rider-operator relationships. Several interesting points emerged. One was that the communications effort to improve these important relationships starts before an operator is even an operator. That means it's in how you write the questions for your job applications and interviews and for your training materials. Another interesting point emerged, and first it seemed kind of small. By far and away, the most common method that agencies communicated with their operators was to print out the communication and put it on a piece of paper and post it on a bulletin board in somewhere like a day room where operators could see it. That's pretty old school considering the technologies we have around. But operators wanted to be communicated with that way, and it made them feel respected when the agency did that. Which leads me to the third and maybe most important point. Nearly everyone I talked to commented that any internal communication that made operators feel respected and valued improved how those operators engaged with the public. If you'd like to talk about internal communications or anything else related to communications and public transit, look me up on LinkedIn. My first name is spelled E-L-E-A, last name C-A-R-E-Y. Bismeyer, Regional Sales Director for Patera, and this is Mike's Minute, where we talk about random acts of kindness, mentorship, and leadership with the hopes that'll inspire you to pay it forward. With the ongoing pandemic, travel restrictions, and the emphasis on staycations, my wife and I decided to embark on a personal challenge last week while enjoying a week of vacation. We decided to visit five local businesses, enjoy a meal and a beverage, and commit five random acts of kindness in our community. It was a lot of fun. We engaged with local business owners, heard their passion as to why they had originally opened in our community, their story, and their apprehension with what 2020 has thrown their way. They were all very grateful that we engaged, stopped by for a meal or a drink, shared why we were doing it, and either posted or told others to stop by and visit them as well. The random acts of kindness varied as well, from paying it forward in the Tim Hortons and Starbucks drive through one day to a food bank donation just because. Flowers dropped off at a local cemetery that my wife and I walk by each day, where we actually don't know anybody that's laid to rest there. We just picked a random headstone, just because. Our favorite, though, was the last day, where we bought five Starbucks gift cards preloaded and randomly engaged folks during the day when we were around town doing errands. We had some great conversations with perfect strangers. Ended up giving away the gift cards to one police officer, one school teacher, thanking them for their service, and then three movers we saw working their tails off on one of the hottest days of the year. What is the point of all this, you might ask? Well, it is that we have the power to change someone's perspective, outlook, and most of all their day by doing something very simple, acknowledging them and being kind. Kindness is cool, and I hope this inspires you to pay it forward. Thanks for listening.
Well, thank you for being with us today on Comfort's Corner, part of the Transit Unplugged podcast family. And uh, t- today and every day, we like to end our show taking a look at the future of public transportation. Quite a few of these episodes have included readings from my best-selling book, The Future of Public Transportation, which includes over 40 chapters written by public transportation experts around the world, available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble online. And today, though, I want to take a look at a... Uh, Top 10 Ways to Future-Proof Your Transit Agency. It's a blog post uh, that I recently wrote uh, on our Trapeze Group blog post. If you want to read it, it's there. Uh, but today I want to spend the next few minutes reading it to you because I think it's, uh, I found that I've, I've been basically teaching this class around the world at UITP seminars, I, at for some transit agencies where I do drop-in for their uh, staff meetings. And by the way, if you're interested in having me teach this class, a uh, 20-minute presentation with a PowerPoint slideshow, uh, at your transit agency, at your staff meeting, uh, let me know. I'm happy to do it free of charge. I really enjoy I, you know, my role. I consider it as a transit evangelist, and I want to promote ways to improve our transit. So today, I read to you from my blog post, the top 10 ways to future-proof your transit agency. The coronavirus has delivered a gut punch to most transit agencies around North America. Ridership plummeted by 50 to 95 percent. Farebox recovery has dropped to nil and our reputation as a clean, safe alternative to driving your own car has been given a black eye by early faulty pronouncements that public transit was a petri dish for germs. To deal with the current crisis, many agencies moved to rear door boarding, eliminated cash fare collection, installed plexiglass driver barriers, and are some of them even like uh, shower sheets, you know, uh, shower curtains when they got started before they could get their plexiglass driver barriers in place. And they've added new real-time passenger information screens and app upgrades. Using the CARES Act special funding, U.S. agencies are procuring new tools to respond to and recover from the COVID-19 crisis and help them prepare for a potential resurgence of this and or future contagions and other challenges. In Canada and elsewhere, agencies are reprioritizing their capital and operating budgets to ensure they have the tools to respond to what may be coming just over the horizon. This pandemic proved how essential transit is to a region's economy, with ridership staying at 50% or better, even with directives in place for only essential workers to use public transit. Those service jobs that keep our economy humming are filled with employees who utilize public transit for their mobility. Now agencies are thinking about how to future-proof their agencies and services from other similar pandemics or challenges to come. Much of their efforts focus on being nimble in service delivery, so they're not caught flat-footed in being able to adjust routes and driver schedules quickly, provide valuable real-time information to passengers, and emphasize low-touch, clean provisions of mobility. So here are the top 10 ways, or top 10 ways, that transit agencies are creating the future-proof bus service of tomorrow. Number one, zero emission buses, electric, CNG, hydrogen fuels, re-emphasizing transit's ability to help create a clean future. Two, new tech tools for back office scenario planning, rerouting service, and adjusting rosters and shifts quickly and seamlessly when needed. Three, high frequency routes, using headway management instead of time point management on bus only lanes with transit signal priority. Four, new software and hardware that allows for better tracking of assets, buses, rail cars, facility cleaning, and more accurate on-yard vehicle location. Uh, now a little spinoff of that. I, I was at a, a bus garage just before coronavirus hit, pretty big one, and I was kind of surprised that I looked up on the wall and saw in dispatch um, a piece of paper that had uh, a large piece of paper, but it had all the parking spots on the lot. And a utility personnel had walked the lot earlier 
and it put the numbers of each vehicle that were where they were parked on the parking lot. And I thought, you know, this is 2020, not 1980. We have tools in place now where you can track where your vehicles are on the yard. And now since then, that's become even more important as people are um, having to know where their vehicles are as they bring back paratransit vans in between each passenger to do wipe downs or bigger buses. Uh, to do their cleaning uh, mid-cycle of the day. So you've got to know where your vehicles are on the yard. And a lot of agencies are figuring out ways to do that that don't involve personnel walking around, you know, identifying where they're parked at, you know, for this hour. Um, and then number five, back to the list, uh, contactless fairing. Moving away from traditional fare boxes and emphasizing account-based fairing, wearables, contactless cards, which speed boarding allows for all door boarding and is low touch. Six, real-time passenger information, permitting passengers to make informed decisions, allowing for capacity control on buses and trains and at bus stops and platforms. This creates confidence in the system. Seven, microtransit, supporting main routes and providing more individualized service. Number eight, online mobile trip booking, allowing for more control for passengers and reducing the need for packed call centers. I used to run a call center uh, going to skew now from the written portion just for a minute to illustrate. Used to run a call center in Washington, D.C. I was uh, the director of operations for our paratransit service for WMATA. I worked for MV Transportation at the time for five years out of D.C. For a while, I ran the field operations. We had 12 garages where we took eight to 10,000 trips a day with the fourth largest paratransit system in the country and the largest single contract at about $100 million at the time. And then in the second part of the contract, I took over day-to-day -day operation of the call center where we did reservations, dispatch, and scheduling. And I had probably 60 or 70 reservations all right next to each other at these long tables taking calls from folks. Well, now, of course, uh, with uh, decreased uh, trip volume, they've been able to, you know, socially distance, so to speak, in the call center, put up dividers in between the desks at some of these locations uh, in Baltimore. I, I heard they're working on that as well. And, uh, and, and maybe have somebody sit at every other desk. But once the uh, call volume picks back up, they're going to need more call takers and having them sit right next to each other may not be uh, may not be necessary anymore if you can get more people to book their own trips uh, through online and mobile trip booking. It also, of course, would reduce the call, the cost for operating a call center if more people could do that. And so that's something that people are looking at ways to do, get the software and hardware in place to make that happen. And then number nine, back to the article, autonomous vehicles to provide niche service as part of a comprehensive program of mobilities and service. You saw what Nat Ford was doing where he was using uh, down in Jacksonville transit um, autonomous vehicles to transport COVID-19 test samples from a drive-in testing facility to the campus of the Mayo Clinic and other people have come up with over in China they've been using autonomous vehicles for lots of different interesting uh, you know purposes to transport food and medicine back and forth between facilities etc so autonomous vehicles are part of a larger solution potential niche uh, market uh, so anyway, that's something that's happening as well. And then mobility as a service is number 10. Obviously, aggregating all public mobility services in a city on one smart app in which passengers can plan, pay for, and eventually subscribe for all mobility services. This allows people to make their own choices. It also is important in an era where we are still currently in many cities limiting the number of people that can get on a bus. And so if a bus normally may hold 50 or 60 passengers and now we're only allowing 20 on, where do the rest of the people go? Well, having a mobility as a service app available, which outlines you know, all the mobility options in the city, could give passengers quickly, they stand in at a bus stop and the driver comes up and says, sorry, we're full. And if they don't have a, a trailer vehicle, 
that's following behind them to pick up other folks, then people are kind of left stranded. And so having a mobility as a service app in place could allow them to look at what the other options are for them to, to meet their mobility needs. So again, these are the top 10 ways I see that industries are helping to kind of future-proof their agency. Uh, when speaking to transportation professionals in the field, I've heard that agencies need to leverage software solutions that reside on the cloud and can be accessible anywhere and from any device that has an internet connection, said industry leader Paola Riopozo. She told me that might be an enterprise software product that can be used by your office staff from home, as well as now having experience to having to relocate your office due to a pandemic or mobile applications that can give field workforce the ability to enter and consult information instantly and without the need to wait until they visit the dispatch office facility or office. Seamless operations, self-service tools, real-time field data will future-proof your agency, according to Paolo Riopozo. Uh, my former MTA chief operating officer, John Duncan, told me that agencies should also focus on the optimization of technology solutions. He said, Many agencies tend to do things as they evolve or have always done them. When they optimize, they get a new round of data validation input set up and training that they may not have had in years. And finally, Lauren Skyver, CEO and general manager of Sunline Transit Agency in Coachella Valley, California, encourages transit leaders to accelerate route redesigns. She urges agencies to take this time to reassess the effectiveness and past productivity of your service. Most systems have service that is unproductive, either in routes or route segments. Cutting service is precarious and political, she says. This is the perfect time to cut unproductive service and add frequency where productivity was best prior to COVID-19. She continues, try to face your service decisions with a silver lining approach. Use COVID-19 as a reason for making decisions you knew were best even before the pandemic, unquote. She continued, while reduced service networks are in place and maybe for quite some time, now is the time to make potential service changes that would have been disruptive during normal operations. Any plans that were in the pipeline for redesign should be accelerated. Why bring your same old network back up just to then have to make incremental changes? Fast track those interlinings or route changes. That's great advice uh, that Lawrence Skyver gives. By smartly applying these new approaches, agencies can be better prepared for a pandemic. Uh, this is back to me talking now or any other major events that can quickly impact service. By having the proper tools in place, public transit agencies can be more flexible, resilient and resourceful and providing the mobility services needed by our passengers and the public in general. And that's my reading from my blog post, the top 10 ways to future-proof your transit agency. Hopefully you enjoyed it. And hopefully you enjoyed this episode of Comfort's Corner. We had Sam Sargent as our newsmaker interview and uh, had a lot of good headline news and some good um, messaging minutes and uh, kindness is cool minutes from the king of kindness, Mike. Thanks so much for being with us uh, on this episode of Transit Unplugged and stay safe out there.